Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Emily Wilkins, a congressional and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government and your guest host for today. With me is Down Ballot Counts veteran and senior reporter Greg Giroux. We are back after the August recess, which really wasn't that much of a recess. A lot happened on the campaign trail, and a lot of it seems to be in favor of the Democrats. But is it enough for them to help keep the House or the Senate this November? We're going to break it down in just a minute with J. Miles Coleman, associate editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look... House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But first, as always, we bring you Jero's Gem. Thank you, Emily. Jero's Gem is a political number of note that I introduce every episode of Down Ballot Counts. And this episode's gem is 6,279. That big number represents how many state legislative seats are on ballots in the November 8 general election. While we tend to focus more on U.S. House and U.S. Senate elections here at Down Ballot Counts, the title of our podcast means we must also be very mindful of the contest for control of most state House and state Senate chambers. After all, they have very important policymaking roles and can also serve to promote or impede state governors. According to the National Conference of State Legislatures, the 6,279 state legislative seats that will be contested this fall account for 85% of all the 7,386 state legislative seats nationwide. In the 49 states with bicameral legislatures, Republicans control 61 chambers compared to 37 for Democrats, while Nebraska has a unicameral legislature that is nominally nonpartisan. You'll want to watch... Legislative races in states including, but not limited to, Arizona, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, and New Hampshire. Arizona, Nevada, and New Hampshire also are playing host to highly competitive races for the U.S. Senate and U.S. House, so those states may merit even closer watch. So, 6,279, the number of state legislative seats at stake on November the 8th, that is your Jero's Gem. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, we went all the way down the ballot back there. We're going to come up now with our guest. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. We're joined now by J. Miles Coleman, an associate editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball, probably the most trusted crystal ball of all the crystal balls when it comes to election. Miles, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, Miles, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, we've just passed Labor Day, often described as that unofficial kick off to the fall campaign in a point when more American voters begin to pay more attention to politics and the candidates and allied political groups intensify their paid media campaigns. As we speak, 62 days before the election, Miles, not that I'm counting or anything, uh, how likely is it that uh, one or both chambers of Congress will shift to Republican control? Yeah, sure. So our thinking is pretty much the House is looking much better for the Republicans. In fact, last week, what my associate Kyle Condick did um, is he's like, okay, Miles, what I want you to do is I want you to move all of the seats that we have as toss up, you know, in one direction or the other and come up with your own kind of projection. I'll do that myself as well. Uh, so I did it, and I came up with a Republican gain of 17 in the House, which would put them around 230 seats, give or take. 
uh, I sent it to Kyle, and he's like, well, that's funny, Miles, because guess what? I came up with a gain of like 16 for the Republicans, so it was good that we were on the uh, same page. But, but, uh, but I think point being, uh, at this time, it's looking that the, like the Republicans may pick up you know, 15 to uh, 20 seats. You know, earlier this year, it was looking like uh, – you know, it was looking like they may pick up more like 25 or even 30. Um, so, you know, I think with the uh, the Supreme Court choice on Roe v. Wade, I think that's really sort of turned this midterm dynamic on its ear some. The Senate is basically, we see it more of a toss-up. In fact, we just moved uh, Arizona, uh, which is Mark Kelly and Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania, uh, which is that open seat with Dr. Oz and and uh, John Fetterman, uh, both from toss up to leans Democratic. One thing in this business of forecasting is we always try to be kind of cautious. You know, we really want to do all of our research before we make a call. Uh, and for both of those races, it's like okay, the Democrats have been up for several points for you know a while. Let's you know let's go ahead and make that change. But you know, I think the Senate is probably more of a toss up now. And could you explain for our listeners why the the Senate is a toss up and why the House is more favorable? Uh, two Republicans. Yeah, sure. So it's almost like uh, 2010. Uh, and that was basically a year where the Republicans flipped the House uh, and came close in the Senate. You know, I think part of that is just the House is the, the body of Congress that is more, uh, kind of more susceptible to whatever the national mood is. What I do every day as I go on 538.com and I check what Biden's approval rating is, right? You know, I'm sure I'm sure I'm not alone there here, right? Uh, but what I noticed is, you know, Biden's approval, yeah, it's been on there as a uptick, uh, but that's still about the same or where it is um, in November last year when they lost this high-profile governor's race here in Virginia. So it's getting better, but it's not great. Uh, you know, I think redistricting, which, you know, we've written a lot about at the crystal ball over the last year or so. Now, I think Democrats got some losses in redistricting. You know, I'm specifically thinking about states like New York and Florida, um, where they got some unfavorable rulings. But overall, I think redistricting is going to be somewhat of a wash. Uh, and then the Senate, it's sort of – last year I was talking with a good friend of mine who's a Republican and, and like he's like, Miles, what I'm most worried about you know, isn't going to be those toss-up states in the Senate. It's going to be the, those states like Ohio where Republicans run these kind of unpalatable candidates. And well, guess what? <laughs> That's exactly where we are right now. You know, that's something that really hurt the Republicans in 2010, you know, in states like Delaware or Nevada and Colorado. You know, they've done that in states, you know, this time, like Georgia uh, with Herschel Walker. Uh, Dr. Oz, you know, has definitely made his fair share of uh, gaffes. But what must be more frustrating for the Republicans this time um, is they're really right in the end zone. I mean, in 2010, kind of going into the 2010 elections, the Republicans in the Senate were in a pretty deep hole. You know, they only had 40, 41 seats. It was very unlikely that they would actually get the majority. But this time, they only need to pick up a one seat. That said, there certainly is a path for the Republicans to take the Senate. Uh, but I see stuff like the Republicans spending so much in Ohio to prop up J.D. Vance. I'm like, okay, that's not a state that they should really be spending much in. So I thought stuff like that is what we try to follow. 
And as you well know, Miles, we've had a, a raft of special U.S. House elections the past two-plus months. Uh, while Democrats lost in eastern Nebraska, southern Minnesota, western New York, they ran ahead of Joe Biden's 2020 election vote percentage. And then the Democrats, of course, flipped that Alaska at-large seat and held Antonio Delgado's very competitive district in the Hudson Valley and the Catskills on August the 23rd. What are your takeaways from these most recent special U.S. House elections, and do they have any uh, predictive canary in the coal mine value ahead of the nationwide vote? Yeah, I mean, I think more than anything else, it sort of reinforced our thinking that, okay, well, you know what, it's going to be a Republican year, but maybe not as red of a year as we originally thought. You know, to me, it would have been really something because, you know, as you said, in New York, there were two special elections, right? There there was District 19, which was the marginal body in one seat, and then there was District 23, which was the southern tier. That's a more Republican area. You know, the, a Democrat came close. I mean, I think he only lost that southern tier seat by five or six points. You know, to me, it would have really been one thing if that seat flipped too, right, if they won both of those. But, you know, I think what's been really interesting about a lot of these specials is, you know, kind of there's an old adage, right, special elections are special. Um, and what I've seen in a lot of these special elections is you have candidates who – I think now Congressman Ryan in New York 19 is a good good example of overperforming in their home areas. Uh, yeah, had Ryan do really well in Ulster County, which was his home area. It's also one of the more Democratic areas um, in, in that, that state. Uh, you had in that Nebraska election, uh, you had the Democrat running very well in the Lincoln area, which was kind of the more urban and college-educated part of that state. So point being, I'm still kind of interested to see how much of that kind of kind of transfers over, kind of going back to 2010. Um, one of the special elections that I always point to is when John Murtha died, uh, there was a special election for his seat in kind of the southwestern Pennsylvania area, a Republican trending area, but back then Democrats could still compete there. The Democrat uh, who was one of Murtha's staffers, a guy named uh, Mark Kritz, he won by seven, eight points. Uh, but when he had to run for it in the 2010 general, uh, he only won by one or two. So point being, compared to the special elections, even regular midterms can kind of quote-unquote be more presidential. You know, I think with higher turnout, uh, these districts kind of gravitate more towards how they would lean in a presidential election. But one thing I noticed about the Virginia election here last year, which to me was something that could maybe scare Democrats, is... I think one of the differences between this year and 2010 and 2014, which were Obama's very rough midterms, the, the Democrats kind of blame 2010 and 2014 on low turnout. You know, oh, well, you know, our people just didn't show up. Well, nothing I've seen this year <laughs> suggests to me that 2022 is going to be a low turnout midterm. Um, so what I noticed in the Virginia governor's race, you know, it is like it wasn't that we had low turnout. In fact, Glenn Youngkin got more raw votes than any candidate who had run for Virginia governor before. My thinking was, oh, was if I'm a Democrat, oh my God, it's not like, you know, 
the Republicans are winning in these low turnout situations. They're winning with high turnout. People are actively coming out to vote for the Republicans. Absolutely. I think that that was a really great recap um, of a lot of what we saw in August. Obviously, we are now sort of in that sprint to the general, but we do have a few primaries left. Delaware, New Hampshire, Rhode Island that are coming up next week. Uh, and then kind of Louisiana's got a, a bit of an odd one there. Uh, but Miles, talk to me a little bit about what you'll be watching in these upcoming primaries. What are the big ones for you? And what specifically are you going to be watching for that will give you a hint on how the general election will play out? Yeah, sure. So I think I'll kind of start with that last part. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I've been looking at as far as how the, the general election will turn out. Uh, a good friend of mine is a pollster named John Cuvion, and and what he's been doing all year uh, is he's been tracking the kind of partisan composition of these primaries. You know, in other words, that would be you know how many people voted on the Democratic side versus the Republican side. Um, and, you know, we're almost done now with the whole primary season. Um, and I think last I saw the the kind of partisan composition of the 2022 primary was something like 52, 53 percent in favor of the Republicans, which, you know, that's interesting compared to the special elections where the Democrats have really been doing well. Uh, kind of look into uh, next week. You know, I think the big kind of contest is going to be in New Hampshire. The Senate Leadership Fund, uh, which was ba- that's you know basically Mitch McConnell's pack, announced that we're going to spend you know twenty three million in New Hampshire. Uh, but it's going to be interesting to see who the Republicans nominate. Uh, you have Don Bulldock, who ran in 2020, uh, is running kind of a, as a more Trumpier candidate this time. He seems like a favorite against uh, State Senate President uh, Chuck Morse, who seems like a more establishment and sort of a more uh, sort of a more type of cerebral pick as well. If if Bulldock gets a nomination, I can easily see us keeping it at Leans Democratic. If it's more snow, we can I can more easily uh, see us moving it to a toss up. Um, and then one other thing I'm looking for next week um, is you have a few interesting races in Rhode Island. I know that Governor Dan McKay, who took over after. Um, after Gina Raimundo went to the Department of Commerce, he has some competition in his primary. Uh, and then there's going to be a Democratic contest um, in Dead Dancer 2, which is, you know, it, it was somewhat of a surprise that Rhode Island kept both of its house seats. Uh, District 2, which is now open, is the more marginal of those two. Uh, the Republicans have a really... Um, highly touted candidate in former Cranston Mayor Alan Fung. Uh, so that's a contest I'm watching as well. Absolutely. And I know that, you know, you mentioned the Senate and I know you and Greg talked a little bit about what that path forward looks like. I do want to kind of focus in on the House. I mean, it seems like Democrats have been able to maybe potentially head off the sort of red wave that you're seeing. But I wonder if there's really anything that Democrats can do in the next couple months that would help them keep control of the House. It kind of seems at this point that they've passed all their major legislation. Uh, they've they've kind of got their messaging down. Is there really any sort of path for Democrats to keep control of the House at this point? Yeah, you know what I would watch for. You know this this may not be a big mover, but um, 
as it kind of comes to the general election season, uh, we're going to start having more debates in several of these key races. You know, this is one reason I think abortion, we may keep hearing more about it because I can see um, some Republican candidates running for House and Senate as well, uh, maybe giving some less than artful answers <laughs> when it comes to that. And you know, I think you're just... You know, one thing about this past month is I feel like Trump has been a bit more in the news. You know, I think as long as Trump's in the, the news, it's a plus for Democrats, you know, because the focus is off of uh, Joe Biden, who uh, isn't popular. But I think if the Democrats held the House, which, you know, it isn't impossible, you know, they'd just really be going against history here. So, you know, this could be, you know, this potentially could be that type of midterm, but we'll see. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly something that we're going to be continuing to follow, Miles, and we'll be continuing to follow your excellent coverage as well over at Sabado's Crystal Ball. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This was a real treat. This is Down Ballot Counts. Well, that's all we have today for Down Ballot Counts. It was hosted by me, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. We'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to check out all the great politics coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. We'll see you next time. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists, covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.